So we are into, at the end of this particular chapter, chapter number five. And uh, so far, I would have to say that the writer of Hebrews has been a little bit, um, we could call it tame. In the way that he addresses this church. He's been stepping on toes, yeah, by talking about all of their traditions. And and talking about the fact that, yeah, you might love Moses, but Jesus is better than Moses. And you might love your old prophets, but Jesus is better than the prophets. And so on and so forth. But I would have to say, and if you were to sort of evaluate how he's been talking to this church so far. uh, The writer's been relatively calm so far in how he's approached this conversation. It's almost been like that of a counselor. Hey, you're thinking about it this way, but have you ever thought about it like this before? And of course, he's very passionate about this. He's very adamant about what he has to say. He's very clearly telling them Jesus is better. But so far, he, he hasn't been super, we could say, in their face. And yet, all of that changes here. All of that changes with this section that's going to span from chap- the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6. Where the writer takes, we could say, a necessary rabbit trail away from his current conversation about how Jesus is the great high priest of our faith. You'll notice, again, look at verse 11, as he says this, about this. What's the this? The this is what he has just said in verse 10. Notice verse 10. He is talking about Christ, who is, he says, is by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And of course... He has a lot to say about this as he clearly suggests about this, about this very fact that Jesus is the true and better high priest. The high priest from a better order, mind you. I have a lot to say. And, but notice he says, I can't. It's hard to explain. Because you've become so dull, that is, you've become so sluggish and lazy in your hearing. His conversation that he wanted to have is sort of crippled. Of course, as we've already noted, this writer has just essentially taken an incendiary bomb and detonated it on all of the religious tradition and history of the Hebrews. Again, he's asserted that Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron. But then even more than that, he says that Jesus is, the, is a better high priest after a better priesthood, that is, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Which, we're going to save that for chapter 7. That's a discussion for a later time. But just to say, he has a lot to say about this. He's wanting to go deeper. He's wanting to dive further into that truth. And yet, that conversation is crippled. Because they become dull in their hearing. They become lazy towards their meaning, towards the approach to God's word. So much so that, in fact, that he says that they've actually gone backwards. They've regressed. Did you notice that? He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Instead of teaching others, instead of bringing others into this fold, he's saying, I'm having to reteach you all of these things that you should have been beyond. And then, as if that weren't enough, he then proceeds to suggest that they were just a bunch of babies. You need milk again. You're not ready for steak. You're not ready for a porterhouse. I need to bring you back again into this this discussion of the faith with milk. So what's he talking about here? The writer is 
Obviously dealing with something very heavy upon him, I would say. Very important. I I think that's clear because I don't think he would be calling them out in such an overt way if he weren't. Essentially, he's saying, I have something so weighty, I can't wait to share to you. But before you, I get to that, i got to do some other legwork first. So what's going on? What, what does he mean by the milk versus the solid food of this passage? What does he mean by that? And how can you and I know, much like this church was perhaps thinking, how can we know that we are getting, we could say, a solid spiritual diet and not a milky one? I think these are really pivotal questions to ask. And I would say but even more important than all of that, though, is how we go about answering those questions. Because I think we have to take a lot of care and a lot of precision. Or else I think we risk doing a lot of damage, not only to the word, but to the faith as well. So we're going we're gonna to dive deep into this. Because I don't want us to skim over this passage. It's, I think it's too important. There's a way... And in fact, I'll give you an example in a second. There's a way in which we can read this section of Hebrews, spanning from about 11 down through verse 3 or so of verse 6, of chapter 6, I should say. As if the writer is now just expressing his frustration over the fact that this church hasn't moved on from the gospel. We read that phrase, right? Basic principles of the oracles of God. Or notice verse 1. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. We read these phrases. I think it's easy to think that both of these are meant to refer to the gospel. After all, what's the most basic of all biblical truths? It's the kids song, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When was the last time you sung that in Sunday worship? Probably, probably been a long time. It's a song that, for better or for worse, has been relegated to junior church. That's junior church stuff. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son is perhaps the very first verse you have ever learned if you have ever spent any time in church. And when was the last time we ever really pondered what that really meant? It's a basic biblical truth. These are, we could say, the quote-unquote ABCs of the Christian faith. This is kindergarten stuff that obviously, clearly, right? Clearly he's talking about we got to move on from that stuff. Let us leave those things And go on to maturity. He's talking about the gospel, right? No. If you know anything about me, I'm going to say that's absolutely wrong. It's categorically false. And yet, even still, I would say we're quick to make that assumption. We've heard about the gospel. We've heard about how Jesus loves us and all that kind of stuff. What's next? What, where do we go from there? Now that we've got the milk of the word, let's get to the real meat of the word. In fact, I even came across one preacher who said this. He says, quote, The simple gospel preached over and over again to Christians is producing weak and immature Christians. And I would say that's actually not true. And I'm going to, I hope to tell you why that's not true and to show you how that's not true and how, to show you how that's ex- actually the opposite of what this writer is here saying with this very section in Hebrews. The milk of the word, 
the basic principles of the oracles of God, and the elementary doctrines of Christ are not euphemisms or shorthand for the gospel. Let me just put that out there. The writer's not saying in any way, shape, or form, or anything like that. He's not trying to insinuate that the quote-unquote mature Christians are the ones who have moved on from the good news that Jesus loves them so much that he came to die for them. And that now the mature Christians have gone on to study the meatier and weightier things of God's word. And that's because there is nothing meatier or weightier than the fact that Christ has been crucified for your sin. (laughs) That's the meatiest and most weightiest of all truths we could ever learn. We can't ever reach the end point where we need to graduate from that truth, from that beloved doctrine. And I would even say in this book that's all about how Jesus is better. The writer is not here suddenly stopping and complaining that he can't talk about something else. The importance and the preeminence and the superiority of Christ is his only message. That's what's been driving him. That's what's been motivating him to write this letter as he's trying to persuade all of these waffling and these wavering believers who are sitting in that Hebrew church to realize that they already have all that they need in Christ already. So what's he saying then? Again, what's this milk versus solid food thing going on here? Well, notice chapter 6. And I'm going to read the first three verses because he lists six things that he says refer to this elementary doctrine of Christ. Notice what he says. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if... God permits. Six things he elaborates on. That he would say defines, as he says, quote, the elementary doctrine of Christ. He talks about repentance from dead works. Faith towards God. Instructions about washings. Instructions about laying on of hands. Instruction about the resurrection of the dead. And instruction about eternal judgment. And obviously he's not saying we need to, if you just read these in terms of how we might often think about them, we would say, why would we want to leave these things? We need to leave talking about repentance? Or some of your Bible translations might have a set of washings, baptism, leaving that or leaving about. You have to understand what he's saying. Because he's not talking about perhaps the way we would think about these things. Put yourself into the mindset of a Hebrew Christian who has been so, and you're just, just recently coming out of a life filled with Judaism and teachings from that liturgy. He's talking about all of those things that go along with the practices of the Old Covenant. He's talking about Old Testament paradigms of Christianity, if you will. He's calling them to leave that. So what do I mean by that? So when he's talking about repentance from dead works, what is he talking about? He's talking about all of those rites and rituals that were so integral to Jewish religion. You can read Leviticus about all of them. These works, as he will say later on, they are dead. 
Because they do not actually deliver. Actually, go across the page to chapter 9. Look at verse 14. He uses the same phrase. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's talking about Christ in comparison to the old dead ways of religion that were, were a part of the tabernacle and such. They're dead now because Christ is alive. He's the living God. Repentance from all of those old things that used to define us. Because why? Because through Christ we are saved, as it says in Ephesians 2.10, we are saved unto good works that Christ has prepared beforehand for us to do, to walk in them. That's what he's talking about. Faith towards God. What is he talking about there? I think here he's referring to this idea that uh, the Jews, of course, were, had this almost general knowledge of, we could say, Yahweh. They were a society, they were a culture that were so centered and driven on, uh, on focusing on Yahweh. And all that they did it was almost like in their DNA, so to speak. Which isn't to say that everyone was a convert. It was just something that people did. And yet, what is the good news of Christ? That more than just a cultural, more than just a casual knowledge of who God is, what happens in Christ? He invites us into a personal relationship with him. It's not just faith towards God. It's actually having his spirit indwell in you. What about instructions about washings? These are, we could say, the ceremonial cleansings that were parts of the tabernacle worship. If you go in Leviticus, and it's actually fascinating if you do that, how many times it talked about how the high priest and the priests themselves were called and commanded by God to purify themselves, to cleanse themselves. All the time, all about that, all the worship that happened in the tabernacle was to be done by clean hands. Hands that were supposed to be, to signify righteous sort of worshipers. And the point is, he's trying to get them to see again, all of that's done away with. The verse we just read in chapter 9, there's a, a better cleansing that's offered to you in Christ. I shouldn't have to be teaching you again about who Christ is and how he has this better cleansing because that's what it was supposed to point you to. Instruction about the laying on of hands. This is an event back in Leviticus 16. We spent some time going through Leviticus 16, but there's a passage in that chapter that we skipped. And um, we can go to it if you want to, but you don't have to. If you read Leviticus 16 chapters, or chapter 16 verses 20 through 22, it talks about how the, the high priest, well, let me just read it. I'm, I shouldn't just try and go off memory. I should just read God's word. That's better than my words. Leviticus 16, let me read this to you. Verses 20 through 22. Because you can see exactly what he's referencing here. Leviticus 16, 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So in this, remember, if you remember the liturgy of the day of atonement, at at the beginning he had two goats and lots were cast. And whichever the lot fell on, there would be one goat who sacrificed himself at the very beginning of the day of worship. And then there was another live goat that doesn't make a reappearance till right here. This second live goat, notice what happens. 
He shall present the live goat, and Aaron, verse 21, shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. You see, what this is... What we would call the scapegoat. You might have seen that word translated sometimes. This laying on of hands of this live goat by the priest symbolizes all of not just his sins. But all of the sins of all the people that he represents being transferred from them onto the goat. Onto an innocent sacrifice. Who then takes all of their guilt and all of their sin into the wilderness. A very epitome of what? Of what Christ has done, he said. We don't need to keep actually doing that to goats. Not because we want to please Peter or something. It's just because it's not necessary anymore. Because why? Because we have a true and better scapegoat. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's showing them again. These things were meant to point you to something. And you're staying. You're still feeding off of milk. about instruction about the resurrection of the dead? The Old Testament. I could take you to several places. But for sake of time. just You could go to Hosea. You could go to the Psalms. There's several, several instances. Where it talks about the resurrection at the last day. There's a resurrection of the dead. This is scattered all throughout the Old Testament. This wasn't an unfamiliar sort of doctrine for people in the New Testament. But what changes when Christ comes? Remember the story of Mary and Martha? What does Jesus say to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. Remember, she's like, I know he's going to rise again at the last day, Martha says. And Jesus says, no, if you believe, he's risen right now. I am the resurrection of the life. An instruction about eternal judgment. Everyone, of course, knew that there was going to be a judgment at the end of days. But it was only in and through Christ that everyone was made to know and made to see their escape from judgment was secure because of Christ. Because of what he did and was going to do on that cross. So you see, again, put yourself into the mind, into the, into the, the sort of frame of mind of these Hebrew believers. They're growing up with all of this Judaism, all of that sort of doctrines that they're familiar with, all of the familiar traditions. And here the writer is saying, I, all of that is good and well enough, but Jesus is better. And I, don't, I, I, I wish I didn't have to spend my time, he says, showing you how all of that was meant to show you Jesus. Because that's what it's meant to show you. The writer, you see, has this mind and he, he has this intent, this plan, this purpose to explain and explore the Old Testament in such a way that demonstrates how all of it was forward looking unto Christ. This is what we've talked about before a couple times, right? That when you're reading the Old Testament, there's multiple levels of meeting happening at the same time. There's historical meeting, and this is actually history. This is actual things that have happened with actual people. But then there's also redemptive history. That all of the Old Testament is meant to show you, to point you, to gear you, and get you to see that it's pointing you to Christ. Who, as Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 17, he has not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. 
And as Paul says in Romans 10.4, that Christ is the end of the law. You see, he's trying to get them to see that all of those forms of worship, all of those laws of, of worship and service that, that constituted the tabernacle and, the, and Judaism and all those sorts of things, they could only ever be what? A copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Flip the page to Hebrews 8. Look at this verse. Hebrews 8, 5. Well, I'll just read verse 4. Verse 4 into 5. Notice, the writer said, we'll get here in a couple weeks, but I, can't, I couldn't help but read this verse now. Notice he says, now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve the priests, the gifts, the sacrifices. That's what the they means. They serve what? A copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. He was, uh, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is a much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. All of those things were just, they were, they were, they were copies, they were shadows. They were patterns after which you were meant to see that Christ is the substance. He's the true substance of what these things stand for. So you see, go back to chapter 5 and just put yourself again into what's going on. This milk versus solid food discussion is not about an arbitrary level of Christian maturity. Oh, you're on a level 2? Look at me, I'm on a level 10. He's not talking about levels of Christian maturity like that. Rather, what is he talking about? He's talking about trading in the substance of their faith. Christ himself. Christ crucified for some milky, murky shadow of it. That's what's on the table. That's the stakes that are in front of them. As they're being tempted to leave the faith, to fall away, to drift away from what they have heard. As he said back in chapter 2, as they've been tempted to drift away from the very gospel that he's trying to get them to see is so deep and wide that they can never sort of plumb the depths of it. He is here trying to say, don't trade it in for something that's just some mediocre uh, uh, shadow of it. They were on the brink of that, remember. They were on the brink of exchanging the solid food of God's glory and grace for the skim milk of Judaism. You could put it like that. That's what he's comparing. That's what he's trying to get them to see. They had grown dull, as he says, in their hearing. Because they were so infatuated with the former things. He had reverted back to that. Liquidy and light spiritual diet of Christian instruction, which had resulted in a liquidy and light approach to their faith that was making them flimsy, that was making them on the verge of giving up. And here he's saying, No, go deeper. Hold fast to what you know. That was their issue. They'd become infected, we could say, by the disease of lazy listening. And that's why they're being called out for it. And he's calling them again to see that all in Christ, they have in Christ all that they already need. 
They don't need to go back to those old forms of worship. They don't need to go back to those old ways where they had to re, uh, they, they don't need to sort of uh, re-sacrifice lambs. They don't need to, to redo all of those things that constituted the, the worship of the tabernacle. Why? Because Jesus is better. And he's already fulfilled all of that. What's the issue for us? We may not be tempted, we could say, to go back to Judaism or something like that. No one has asked me, by the way, if we can slaughter a lamb on Sunday morning. So I don't think that's something in our minds. What's, What's the issue for us then? How is this milk versus solid food contrast relevant for us? Well, let me, let me ask you. Let me just, you don't have to, don't answer out loud. Just answer rhetorically. Why do you come to church? What, just try and just think about this is, this is why I come to church. What is it that makes you keep coming into this place and sitting next to these people and, and doing life with these people? And what do you expect to happen when you come here? Do you come to church because all, your, all of your friends are here? What happens if they leave? You come to church because you like the music that's sung, that's sung here? What happens if that changes? Do you come to church because you like the guy who preaches? What happens if he says something you don't like? You see, I think I would say it like this. If your reason for being here... Is anything other than this life-giving word of the living God, then your faith is milky. It is making you into a milk-toast disciple. Because that's what this word is. It is living. It is solid food. Have you ever heard of that phrase, milk-toast, before? (laughs) It actually comes from a very popular cartoon back in the 1930s and 50s. It was all about this guy named Caspar (laughs) Milk-toast. Who is described as a very timid, very wimpy, very bland sort of guy. The sort of guy that you wouldn't really write home about, so to speak. (laughs) And he gets into all these shenanigans and such. But literally his name comes from the dish, which I've never had and I'm probably not going to have it. But it sounds like a weird version of cereal. Literally, it's milk and toast in a bowl. (laughs) Which, if you like soggy cereal, then you'll probably like this. Because I just think toast hitting milk and it gets all soggy and that's not for me. But that's the, that's the point, right? Just like milk toast is not a meal that has a lot of structural integrity to it. Casper milk toast is not a guy who has a lot of structural integrity to him. I think, I think the same thing has happened to us in the church today. We're churchgoers who... Don't always have a lot of structural integrity to our faith. And I think that's because we've acquired this taste for milky worship. If I can put it that way. For songs and for messages and all kinds of things that just skim off the surface of the word. Just give me a nugget. Give me a little thing that I can grab onto and go away and go home and feel good about myself. And all of that has done what? That just has turned us into a bunch of milk toast believers who will drop church at the sign of a hat. I blame Netflix. I mean, I love Netflix as much as the next guy. There's nothing for me like going home after a long day and just turning on a sitcom for like 20 or 30 minutes and just turn your brain off. 
That's therapeutic. Maybe your therapy is going hunting or something like that. Or maybe your therapy is some other activity. But for some people, Netflix is like therapy. You can just turn your brain off. You can relax. The problem is what, though? We, we take that mindset into church. We've let the Netflix sort of way of thinking inform how we approach churches. We expect options. Loads of them, and if we don't get exactly what we like, what we want, if we're not hearing exactly what we want to hear, it's as easy as tuning out and turning on something else. And we expect to always be entertained, to hear what we want to hear. And if we don't, I guess it's fine to find somewhere else to get what we want. And to offset this, what has happened? Preachers, and I'm not going to call them out, some preachers have started to preach milk toast messages. Because that's all their people want to hear. And it reminds me of what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, right? Remember what he says? That people will have itching ears. They don't want to hear sound teaching. You could insert there. They don't want to hear about the solid food of God's word. So much so that they're going to resort to what? Finding teachers for themselves who will suit their own passions. Or we could say who will serve them milk. That's what he says is going to happen, Timothy. You've got to buckle up. Because what does he say to him? What's Paul's advice? Does he say, just go along with it? Change what? Change the message that I told you before. Just make it a little bit different. Make it easier for your people to digest. What does he say? No. Preach the word, he says. 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word in season and out of season. Whether it's popular or whether it's not. Whether it's, it's, it's convenient or whether it's not. It doesn't matter, Timothy. Your job is to what? Preach the word that has been entrusted to you. Some folks, they think it's the preacher's job, my job, to feed you, to fill you up, to fill up your spiritual bellies with all of the delicacies of God's word, all while entertaining you. And I'm sorry that I'm not much of an entertainer. And there is some truth that I think that the pastor is supposed to feed you. But I think the problem is this, that the modern church, much like this Hebrew church, has grown so lazy. So dull of hearing that we not only come to church expecting to be fed, we come expecting to be spoon-fed. This is wrong. You're not babies. I don't think you're babies. And the sermon is not an event where you're spoon-fed by your pastor. Preaching is not a divine game of airplane where the pastor gets you to eat eat the bread of life. That's not what's going on here. The preaching of the word, what I, what I do and what Matt does and what other elders do and what other faithful pastors and brothers that I know do every week is an act of faith. But you know this? Hearing the word is also an act of faith. When you come to church, what are you expecting to happen? 
What are you expecting to see and experience? Both delivering the word and receiving the word require what? That we humble ourselves and pay attention to what the spirit is doing. Not what we're doing. Not what we want. Not not the direction that we want to go. It's all about how God is leading us by his word, through his spirit, closer and closer to him. You see, my job as I've come to discern it is not to spoon feed you and to be Becoming stronger, better Christians. My job is, is basically, I'm just a herald. I'm a news reporter. And my job is to tell you all about this table. This table that has been laid out for you. And all they do is serve solid food. That's the only thing on the menu. And my job is to tell you what? That you're invited. And what is the invitation to this table? Isaiah 55, 1. Listen to these words. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. That is what's on the table, literally. Every time the word is opened, we are called, we are invited to come and dine, to come and eat, to come and delight ourselves. And what the word is, it's rich food, solid food that actually nourishes your soul, that actually fills you, that actually ripens your faith. Maturity, going back to Hebrews 5, what he's talking about is what happens the more and the more we feed off, as he says there in 5.13, the word of righteousness. Notice Hebrews 5.13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The word of righteousness, as he's saying, is It's for the mature, those who are seasoned. It's for those who are constantly training, practicing. That word of righteousness is is nothing but what? The revelation of what? That your righteousness and mine, the righteousness that gets us into heaven, if you want to think about it that way, it has been gifted to you in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. That's his word of righteousness. That's not just the ABCs of our faith. That is our faith. If we don't have that, we don't have anything to stand on. We don't have any leg to stand on. That's our faith. And we're not called to to leave that or to go beyond it. What is our calling? The calling of the Hebrew writers, the same to us, is to go deeper into it. Shame on me for not seeing this until this morning. Matt Shiley was teaching in Sunday school. Listen to this verse. You can turn there if you want. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 15. Listen to this awesome verse. The same word for child appears in both places, by the way. Notice, he's talking about spiritual gifts and what they do for the body. And notice what he says here. 
Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children. The same word as in Hebrews 4, the ones who need milk. So they may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, by craftiness, by dis- in deceitful creams. Rather, what? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. How do we resist being thrown off course? How do we resist being uh, falling away, being, uh, being thrown about and tossed about? As he says there, by every wind of doctrine, by every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes and says, I have a word from the Lord. How do we know whether that's true or good? By growing up into Christ. By pressing further into the gospel of Christ crucified. We don't need something else. We don't need extra things. Maybe you're worried. I don't possess that kind. You possess all of the knowledge that you need to know what truth is. It's Christ. And the more you're in Christ, the more you're in his word... The more mature you will become. And again, that's not levels of growth. You know what the word literally means? It means seasoned or ripened. Our faith ripens. As he says there in verse 14 of chapter 5 of Hebrews. By constant practice or exercise. The more we're using our faith to discern what is actually true and and in accordance with the gospel of God's word and what is not. That's what grows, ripens our faith. Which, by the way, that's why you should always have your Bible in church. You're receiving the word in faith in what? You're discerning the word at the same time as it's being declared. And I'm not... You know, some person that meet, ha, was going to say you have to have a written Bible. You can bring it up on your iPad as long as you're not Snapchatting the message. If you want to, you can, I guess. But it would be kind of distracting. But the point is what? You're, that's constant exercise. Fruit ripens only as it stays on the vine. And so too does our faith. Is it made firm as we abide On the vine. What does that make you think of? John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. All of this is having the same meaning. Stay on Christ. Stay in the gospel. Don't go to something else. Don't be distracted by some shadow. Some charade of truth. You have the substance of it in Christ himself. To go into maturity then is what? Is to dive deeper and press further into the gospel. I've always, uh, we, we have like lofty ideas about ourselves I think sometimes. I'm speaking for myself, I know this too. Our, our natural inclination is what? We think about growth and we think about ascending. I liken to think that spiritual growth is not A mountain climb, it's a cave dive. They call that spelunking, which I would probably never do. But you can think about spelunking, you get all the gear, the tactical gear, all the, the carabiners and the ropes and things, and you're literally diving, spelunking into a cave, then you don't know how far it's gonna go. That sounds really terrifying to me. 
there's, there's all kinds of horror movies that are about that too. So then that's, anyways. Growing in the gospel, Ephesians 4, 14, and 15, growing up into Christ is actually growing down into the gospel. <laughs> and the further you go down, the further you will find out that there's caverns and caverns and caverns of meaning. And you're never going to reach the bottom of it. You're never going to find the end where it's like, that's where the gospel ends. And then that's where the next thing begins. It's the gospel of Christ crucified all the way down. And his point is, seasoned, ripened believers find so much joy in that. Of coming to the table and dining on solid food. On the rich food of Jesus' redemption for you. We go on into maturity, not by leaving the gospel of Christ, but by diving further into this wonderful mystery that God in Christ has foreordained his son to be the lamb that was slain, as it says in Revelation, before the foundation of the world. What a marvel. What a mystery. I ask you again. Why do you come to church? Are you coming to be fed or are you coming to feed? Are you coming for milk or are you coming for meat? Are you coming for sugary sentiments that say everything is okay and hunky-dory? Are you coming for the solid food of God's grace in Christ? Because this word, this word of Christ is our solid food. It is, as he says in, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, it is our enduring substance. That's on which we are invited to delight in, to dine on for the rest of our lives. May we come and eat. May we enjoy the rich, solid food of Christ crucified for us. Let us pray.